Hi, everybody. It's Dr. Eric Corum, founder of AIM7. Welcome back to The Blueprint, where we distill cutting-edge science, leadership, and life skills into simple tactics optimized for your busy lifestyle and goals. Today, we're joined by Dr. Bapu Jenna, a Harvard Medical School professor, physician, and the host of the Freakonomics MD podcast. Today, we're diving into the fascinating intersection of health, economics, and chance, exploring how chance occurrences can impact our health and mortality. We'll discuss the concept of left-digit bias and its surprising influence on high-stakes decisions like cardiac bypass surgeries. So whether you're curious about the role of chance in your health or interested in the blend of economics and medicine, this episode is packed with fascinating insights you're not going to want to miss. So let's get right to it. Let's lean in and learn from the best. What role does chance play in life and death? Interesting question. Yeah. So for me, chance means a couple of things, or it's interesting to me in a couple of ways. So when we started writing this book, which is really about how chance occurrences affect your health and mortality, that's sort of how I kind of think about the book. That was the component of the book and and the research that was actually most interesting to me. It's not a surprise that chance would permeate your life in a lot of ways and your health in a lot of ways, right? So some people get devastating diseases like cancer by chance. Some people are um, injured, you know, for example, in a car accident or a pedestrian accident by chance. Those sorts of chance occurrences, I think everybody would appreciate. It's totally random and it could dramatically affect your health, but you can't predict it in any way. There's no insight that you can get into how to stop that from happening, except just, you know, not going outside. But there's another role that chance plays in our life that is is equally random, but it's much more predictable. And it also can teach us something sometimes. So uh, let me give an example from one of the chapters in the book. We, you know, we spoke about marathons earlier. So a few years ago, my wife was running this race uh, and uh, she wanted me to watch her on the race route. And uh, I wanted to park at the hospital where I work because it was right next to the race route. And I couldn't get to the parking lot because the roads were closed. And so I go back home and then hours later, she says, oh, well, too bad you couldn't come see me, but what happened to everybody that needed to get to the hospital that day? And that was sort of a random comment. And I thought, wow, yeah, you know, what did happen? So if you look at the data, when a city hosts a marathon, the mortality rate, the death rate for people who are older, these are not people who are running the marathon, they're just living their lives. The mortality rate goes up quite a bit for cardiac problems. And the reason why is because the roads are closed and they can't get to the hospital. And so that's a chance thing, right? I, I'm 75 years old. I happened to have a heart attack the day my city was hosting a marathon. Totally random, right? You didn't decide to have a heart attack because the Boston Marathon was happening, which you're not running, by the way, right? But it's totally random in the same way that uh, getting hit by a car might be, might be random. But here, the randomness is predictable. We can figure out, well, you know what? If we close these roads, these sorts of things will happen. And they also help us answer more fundamental questions like, how quickly do we need to act when we've got a medical problem, right? If we see that just minutes of delays lead to mortality increases, that means we need to act very quickly for certain medical problems, more quickly than we might have ever could have kind of appreciated. So that's a, one example of how something that's totally random, a chance occurrence, affects your health, not a surprise. But what I think is surprising and interesting is that we can predict some of these things and we can learn from them. So what do we do with this information? I, well, I think you write a book. That's no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and a good one at that. A great one. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, I think it depends on 
the question and the experiment that we're talking about. So in the marathon example, we would not say let's cancel marathons, right? That's not going to be the solution. Or last week or two weeks ago, Taylor Swift had a concert in Boston and there was like, you know, hours worth of traffic getting out of the stadium. T-Swift. And I was thinking, wow, think about all the old people who live near the stadium who might have trouble getting to the hospital now. And so the solution is obviously not to cancel the events. But I think two things come from it. One is it tells us that when these sorts of things are happening, which are in modern society, they happen all the time. Huge events that are disruptive, but bring a lot of people a lot of pleasure. We should be thinking about emergency transport, emergency services for people who are not at the event, but people who live in the community. And by the way, the number of deaths from people not being able to get to the hospital because the roads are closed during a marathon is larger in any given city than the Boston Marathon bombings. So we spent a lot of time thinking about that because that's salient. It's It was a devastating event. It rings in people's minds, but no one is thinking about grandma and grandpa who happen to live near a marathon route or near a Taylor Swift venue and can't get to the hospital. So it tells us how we should restructure things in that way. And the last thing I think it teaches us is that in medicine and healthcare, one of the biggest questions we face, and I'm sure when you were working with athletes, you face this question too, is when do we need to act? So that's the most important thing. It's the most important thing. If an athlete has injury, do you stop then? Can you wait a little bit to see if they get better? What do you do? Your, your child is sick at night. They've got a fever and a headache. Do you go to the emergency room right then? Do you wait till the morning? You know, a doctor seeing a patient who's got chest pain, can they wait a few minutes? They have to act immediately. But you can never conduct an experiment where you say, all right, half of you who are having active chest pain, you just hang tight for a little bit. The other half of you are going to rush you to the hospital. You're never going to do that, right? No. But you still nonetheless want to know the answer to those questions because it's costly to act. And you would want to know if you have time to make a decision. And here's an example of how you can use this marathon study to really tell you where is it that you have time and where is it that you don't have time? I love this. I think a lot about, like I said, kind of going back to what we're doing with AIM-7 is you have data and you have signal and you have noise. Mm-hmm. And I, to me, that was what I kept thinking about as I'm hearing about this, about being seeing versus looking, right? It's kind of the same thing. Signal versus noise. When do you need to act? And that's been the big failure of these devices is it's just data. Yeah. And people just are like, well, great. Thank you very much for showing me that I don't sleep well. (laughs) What action should I take? Yeah. yeah. Or if my heart rate variability goes up or down, what do I do? And I think that a lot of companies don't want to make recommendations. Yeah. You know, or people don't really want it's be, it's easier to show people a dashboard for their car than to really say you need to do something. Or I don't know, I just think that this is a problem in a lot of different domains is making the call to act put you I guess you could say at risk, but the biggest risk is not acting at all. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, there is this enormous interest across the world in like big data. Right. And I get emails all the time about people saying, I've got this really interesting data. I don't know that we actually have a shortage of data. I think we have plenty of data and we had plenty of data a few years ago. I think what we're lacking in in a lot of respects isn't big data, but often just sort of big questions. And and I'm not saying that the questions like that I answer are fall into that category. I mean, they're interesting to me and, and I get excited about them, but we spend so much time thinking about all the data that we can collect 
without thinking to ourselves, what are the most interesting applications we can make of the data before we gather it or even the data that we have? And I think companies who are in this space of acquiring data, whether it be wearable data or sleep data or whatever it is, they're often just sort of thinking, let's just collect the data and then the question will come. Sometimes it does, but I think you you actually need to make that a focus as well. A hundred percent. You're preaching to the choir here, my yeah. friend. I love it. <laughs> I love it. What is uh, the last question for you is, and this was fascinating to me, and I think people are going to love this one. What is left digit bias? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So when you go to the store, Eric, and you see a, an item on the shelf that's $4.99, yeah, if I were to ask you, why does it cost $4.99? Why not just make it easy and make it $5? Most people would say, oh, yeah, no, it's because it's four. It feels cheaper because I see the four and I think maybe it's like $4 as opposed to $5. And that refers to this cognitive trick that the mind is, uh, experiences, which is called left digit bias. The mind tends to focus on that leftmost digit, which is a four versus a five. And so something that's $4.99, it's only one penny cheaper, but it feels more than a penny cheaper because it has that four in front of it. Now, this has obviously been known by people for a long, long time. I mean, for many, many decades, items have ended with a 99 cent after them, and there's a reason why. But what is probably less obvious is how something like that, which, you know, it might apply to the Dorito purchases that I make at CVS late at <laughs> night, right? No, not, not a surprise, but, you know, that's really a low stakes environment. But would we think that something like left digit bias, this, this, uh, mind trick or heuristic would apply to something that's really high stakes. And I don't think that everybody would think that. And what we've shown actually is that if you look at cardiac surgeons, you know, who are deciding whether or not to pour, perform a cardiac bypass surgery on someone who's had a heart attack, they, they fall victim to the same bias. If someone is 79 years old and 51 weeks when they come to the hospital with chest pain, they are more likely to be offered a cardiac bypass surgery than someone who is 80 years old in one week. And the reason why is because the surgeon looks at those two patients and says, okay, this group, this, th these patients are in their quote unquote 70s. And this other group, they're in their quote unquote 80s. And the older patients are, the less likely doctors are to want to intervene. And to me, what's interesting is two things. One is if you then look at those people who just turned 80, who are 20% less likely to get the bypass surgery, they actually live similar lives as the, uh, the, other, the other patients. So even though they don't have to get the surgery and they don't get the surgery as often, their one-year life expectancy is basically the same. So that teaches us that here's a way to show that we're actually maybe doing too many cardiac bypass surgeries in 80-year-olds because we're not extending life when we, uh, when we do the surgery for, for this group of people. And the second thing it teaches me, I think, is that Look, we are so interested in behavioral economics and cognitive psychology. There's wonderful research and popular books on this idea. And oftentimes, they involve decisions that are not that high stakes. And isn't it interesting to say that in a really high stakes decision, like a cardiac bypass surgery, where the stakes are very high for the patient, for the doctor, and people are obviously thinking about the decision very carefully, that sort of bias can still creep in. And to me, that's sort of a really interesting kind of finding. I love this. If you were to kind of bring this home for folks and this way of thinking, viewing the world, what's the take-home message for the average person that's listening to this besides 
and I'm going to promote this. You need to get the book. It's phenomenal. I mean, it really is. If you're a curious person like me, like you're going to just love all the little, the little things, the little details about life. Like, oh my gosh, totally missed that. Or I did have that question. Do presidents age faster? But what would you say is a take home message for how people can apply this to their life? I think the purpose of this book is to show people, give people a window into that creative process to see how we sort of conceive and think of questions and then how we answer them. And for me, this is a skill that everybody or almost everybody possesses to some extent, and then they can foster if they wanted to. So I think the take home here is spend some time being curious, asking questions. And at the very end, the last thing that we actually say in the book is if you got an interesting question, you should email us because you know we're in the business of interesting questions with a, a particular focus on health. So I, I really do hope that people like read the book, they go out, they live their lives and like, ah, oh, geez, you know, I wonder if people named Chris are more likely to be cardiologists and people named Deborah are more likely to be dermatologists mm. and people named Gail are more likely to be gastroenterologists. Yeah. Right. Turns out that's not true, by the way, Eric. Uh, I was going to think, Eric, Eric, the only thing that comes to mind is <laughs> ENT, ear, nose, throat surgeons, or like Bapu. entomologists. <laughs> Brain Bapu. surgeon. Brain surgeon. Exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's, that's the less correct term. If people yeah. are interested in learning more and following you, where can they find you? One is they can read the book. Uh, it's called Random Acts of Medicine. Two is we actually have a sub stack that we're going to be launching go. Uh, around the same time of the book. It'll be called Random Acts of Medicine. It'll be a way to hear about a lot of the studies and ideas that didn't make it into the book, but I think are equally interesting and a way to sort of engage with people who are interested in this way of thinking. So that's the best way. I love it. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Blueprint. This has been a ball for me. I've totally enjoyed this. This has been a blast and I look forward to connecting with you in the future. Likewise. Thank you, Eric. Thanks again for listening to The Blueprint Podcast. And if you've benefited from great guests like Dr. Bob Jenna, or you've learned things that have impacted your health and wellness, please consider leaving us a comment and review on whichever listening platform you are joining us from. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you on the next episode.